there's the concept of being a very talented scientist, you know, and I thought that was, oh, you have to be super sharp and super smart. But nowadays, I also really appreciate patience and persistence. Welcome to Biogenesis, where we get to know a biologist, where they came from, and where they're going next. I'm Connor Gearin from Whitehead Institute. And I'm Raleigh McElvery from the MIT Department of Biology. This season, we'll introduce you to three graduate students who are breaking the mold. Over the course of their research training, these biologists have shattered the preconceived notions they grew up with about what scientists look like and where scientists come from. Today, you'll meet T. Pham. After moving to the U.S. from Vietnam at age 20, she learned English while delving into biophysics and computer science courses, opening a door to a career she hadn't realized was available to her. At Whitehead Institute, she's applying artificial intelligence to predict how cells fine-tune gene expression using short sequences of RNA called microRNAs. My name is T. Pham. I'm a fifth-year graduate student in the Bartel lab. So I grew up in a small fishing town by the beach in Vietnam. So it's really, really beautiful. It's touristy. And my parents have at first a small business and then it's kind of grown into like a medium-sized business. Um, so my mom helped my dad with the business and they just buy like seashell and make them into souvenirs and export them to other parts of the country or like other countries. So I read a lot of comic books growing up. Manga was really big in Vietnam back then, but I also read a lot of just fiction. I tend to read like whatever is around me, and my parents have a lot of Buddhism texts, so I, I remember reading them a lot as a kid. T was also drawn to math because of its elegant simplicity. I just really liked math when I was growing up. Like every Saturday, I would wake up very early and do all my math homework, which is not a normal thing for a lot of kids. A lot of the time, things don't make sense. Like, human behaviors in real life don't make sense at all, in my opinion, as a kid. So I think for me, that sense of very pure and abstract thinking was really beautiful and comforting. In my sixth grade, I got there's a book about, like, history of math that focused on mathematicians. So I think that was my first exposure to what is a scientist, what is a mathematician. And I really appreciate how diverse those stories are. But I think that my most formative moment thinking about scientists is when I learned about Mendel and genetics. Gregor Mendel, a 19th century Austrian monk, studied pea plants in his monastery's garden to learn how traits such as color, shape, and size were passed down to the next generation. His work revealed some of the core principles of genetics and heredity. This guy who, you know, by himself tried to understand something in the world that was like a puzzle to him. And he just like very meticulously worked through that. And his work wasn't even discovered when he was alive. He didn't get any recognition. But after people rediscovered what uh, he worked on, it basically changed genetics forever. He loved learning about math and science, but wasn't sure what kind of career was the best fit for those interests. We have very good science education in high school and middle school, but 
no one ever talk about doing research as a career. Like we talk about it as something that you learn from textbook, but there's not the sense that, oh, these are questions that you can actually go and answer. It's just like things that are presented to you, uh, like a way of thinking about the world. And if people are good with science, I think that usually they go into become a doctor, an engineer. The way I read about science is mostly from scientists that work in isolation, like mathematicians. I didn't have a sense that, oh, there's like institution of people doing research. And there's like a platform, a framework for you to facilitate you to do these things. But when T's family made a big move, her opportunities shifted. They came to Long Beach, California, where her dad's siblings were living. Her parents hoped that living in the U.S. would provide more choices for T's education. But the transition wasn't without challenges. We have a lot of extended family and, you know, all my uncles and aunts taking very good care of us, like, you know, guide us to own the paperwork. But um, it was pretty different. From, from where we were, I definitely was kind of scared. And a lot of the culture aspect was very different from, from me too. Like, you know, how people always smile when they see you. Or like, ask you how you're doing. Yeah, so I think that I was just pretty nervous about fitting in and just trying my best to, you know, catch up with the language. Her knowledge of French, which shares common root words with English, helped her catch on though. I would definitely say that learning French for like 12 years helps me a lot with getting myself familiar with English. Enrolling at the nearby community college and taking English as a Second Language, or ESL, courses helped T gain momentum in American higher ed. I took a bunch of ESL class at Long Beach City College, and I just, I'm just very thankful for that opportunity because I think that ESL program at community college is really awesome. My teachers was very caring. They, they pay a lot of attention to their students. Pop culture helped fill in the gaps in classroom language education. Sometimes I joke that like most of my spoken English is actually come from the office <laughs> because I watch it five times. While still learning English, T took on another challenge. As a junior, she transferred to the University of California, Berkeley as a pre-med student. While the curriculum was difficult, T's persistence allowed her to study until the material made sense. I remember my first semester at Berkeley, there was a class that was pretty challenging. And like we really have to pay attention in lecture. So what I did was like I record the lecture and sometimes I would listen to it like two, three times and try to like write out what I think was essential. Her class on biophysical chemistry opened up a new way of blending her interests in biology and math. Everything got built on fundamental law of physics and chemistry. There was one experiment in particular that caught her attention. It's a biophysics experiment when you basically use two laser beams and then you can use the laser beam to grab on material. You just grab on one RNA molecule that form a hairpin and then unfold it and see the kinetics of how it's refold. For me, it's really beautiful because it's a direct way to measure what we expect the molecule behavior is. It was a way to think about biology very quantitatively, which is something I really like. She found a lab where she could explore those interests even further. She began working with Professor Carlos Bustamante, who studies the biophysics of individual biological molecules. So being in the lab definitely 
make me seriously consider and finally decide to do research. I mean, research is hard, but I think people just like go in every day, you know, ask like different questions, uh, talk to a lot of smart people, and discuss the problem they have, and try to figure it out. That was something that was really appealing to me. Following her curiosity, she found herself taking classes in a related field. Computational biology was a natural transition there because Berkeley is very famous for computer science. And at the time, when I go to biology talk, like a lot of people was talking about computational biology, um, you know, sequence analysis, uh, alignment, and such. And I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, taking computer science classes was a lot of fun. But it was getting time for her to decide what her next step would be. It was the time when I was supposed to like take the AIMCAT. And I feel like, oh, I actually like, don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> what she wanted was to be a research biologist. It would be something that uh, matched my ability more because I like to think about stuff and I like problem solving. And I like talking to people about ideas. She applied to a lot of different graduate programs, but ended up trying to decide between Caltech and MIT. T opted for MIT biology because she was drawn to the computational biologists in the department. She was also curious about the climate. I actually like never really experienced places with seasons before, so I thought that would be fun. Through her years as a grad student, she has grown to appreciate MIT biology's emphasis on training students to choose fruitful questions to study. We all take classes in our first year, and everyone here is our expert in like different fields of biology. So I think that I got a lot of benefit from just talking to people about how they think about biology in general. I thought that, you know, scientists don't need to talk to people. <laughs> Know, but I have realized that you know talking to people and discuss ideas is probably one of the most enjoyable part of being a scientist. In her first year, she especially liked how one of her instructors, Whitehead Institute member David Bartell, approached biological questions. I just remember being very, very impressed with how smart and sharp he is in that paper reading class and how rigorous and careful he is as a scientist. I heard from people that, oh, like, you know, like Davey's always very available and you can always talk to him. And I, for me, it's like pretty rare because like a lot of PRs are very busy with traveling, but Davey's always very available and always willing to like mentor, talk to you about science. T joined Dave Bartel's lab for her PhD project. There, she found a perfect opportunity to keep studying RNA while bringing the latest computational advances to bear on tiny, hard-to-predict molecules. The Bartell lab studies how gene expression in the form of RNA, the intermediary between the genetic code of DNA and the final products of proteins, is regulated by other molecules in the cell. RNA that codes for a protein is called a messenger RNA, or mRNA. But cells need to fine-tune the amount of mRNA in the cell so that genes are expressed at just the right level. One of the ways cells do this is through a different type of RNA called microRNA. These short sequences bind to a protein called argonaut, or AGO, that can target mRNA to repress them, which means decreasing their levels in the cell. This repression ensures that genes aren't overexpressed, which could lead to uncontrolled cell growth, and instead kept at a healthy level. Predicting which mRNA a given microRNA will target has proved to be a challenge, though. When a microRNA binds to AGO, 
the shape of the microRNA changes. That means you can't simply read off the microRNA sequence and look for a complementary sequence in a target mRNA. On top of that, a single microRNA can have many different mRNA targets, and they don't bind to each other with the same effectiveness. There's a lot of variables in the system. You can right now predict 30% of the variants. But at the end of the day, we still have 70% of the variants missing. So it means that there's something about the system that we don't understand enough to make good prediction. T wants to use deep learning methods to explain more of the variance. In other words, to make the lab's predictions more accurate about what an individual microRNA does to decrease the levels of mRNA in a cell. I think that if you really understand a system, then you'll be able to make very good prediction of how the system should behave. Two other graduate students, Kathy Lin and Sean McGeary, had done experiments where they precisely measured the mRNA targets for several microRNAs. That helped the lab understand the affinity between those microRNAs and their mRNA targets. Now, T wants to broaden those results to all microRNAs. An improved computer model could potentially give the researchers a way to predict, for any microRNA bound to an agoprotein, what mRNAs they seek out and how much they decrease the mRNA levels in the cell. Basically, we want to have a biochemical model of how repression happens, and that model relies on the affinities between agomicronase and the mRNA target. So what we wanted to do is to be able to predict local affinities for many, many microRNA target pair. To predict the effects of any given microRNA, T is enlisting a new tool, neural networks. It's a form of artificial intelligence that mimics the way that neurons in the human brain can forge unexpected connections. It's the same technique that has shown promise in complex tasks like colorizing black and white images and generating text in a chosen author's style. There's a lot of fake Shakespeare going on on the internet nowadays because Neuronet was able to generate like perfectly fake Shakespeare. Instead of feeding her Neuronet Shakespearean plays, T will train it with known affinities between microRNAs and their mRNA targets that the lab has measured experimentally. Then the AI will look for more patterns than a human ever could in order to build a better predictive model for all microRNA targeting. The thing with a neural net is that it can try many, many functions in a very fast amount of time without you having to like supervise it. And then some of them we don't, like as human, we don't even think of. So the neural net just have a way to be able to explore a larger space than we are capable of. T hopes to finish collecting her training data for the neural net soon. She's looking forward to delving into the computational part of the project. I'm also very excited for it. I actually, I got to say, I probably like doing computational work more than experimental work. So I'm really looking forward to it. I like to think quantitatively. I like to put like number, a uh, symbol, uh, pair down, everything in, in a very simple way. So for me, that is appealing. For me, at least it's not super different. It's just like the different ways you, you answer a question. At the same time, T's exploration of American culture continues. She volunteered as a canvasser during the 2020 primaries. I learned actually a lot from that. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about American culture. So um, I've been also trying to like, you know, like get myself more familiar with, you know, the history and various aspects of American society. 
She has also contributed some time towards an initiative that mentors students at Bunker Hill Community College, since a community college helped her pivot towards her current career. I think it's like a great thing that our department is trying to do something like this. Because I came from community college, and I think that I, you know, I didn't really know about research back then. It's like just a good way for you to really decide what your career should look like. She's beginning to share her lessons about persistence with students interested in research. I think that's a lesson that, you know, every time my experiment failed, and I was like, oh God, it is so hard. But if you like, like push at it or like talk to people and ask for help, you will eventually figure it out. Like it's not, it doesn't work like 100% of the time, but I think it's give me the intuition to just keep trying. Well, that's all for today. Next time, tune in to hear about a student who is investigating how cells can withstand and transmit mechanical force. Subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us on our websites at MIT Biology and Whitehead Institute. Thanks for listening.